Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in. As ever, we've got so much to cover in this time we've got together, so let's get moving. Well, actually, before we get moving on to the substance, first of all, thank you so much, those of you who tuned in to the live stream of the King's Place show last Monday night. I hope we covered a lot of ground that evening, delving deeper than we even have the chance to do in the podcast and having a few laughs en route in these stormy times. The next one is on December the 16th and controversially because London is in tier two it will come live from King's Place. So for those of you wondering what to do over that festive period allow yourself one outing to King's Place if you can get there if you live near enough on December the 16th socially distanced they do it brilliantly at King's Place I was there in September and they do it absolutely brilliantly so hopefully some of you can come live kind of in the VIP seats but also for those of you listening from around the UK France the rest of Europe America we're global we're global these days it will be stream live as well so there are two options And the tickets are now on the King's Place website. That's for December the 16th, Rock and Roll Politics, the Christmas special, where over a glass or two of wine, I think we're going to need it, we'll reflect on this year that we have been experiencing, a year that will fascinate historians in hundreds of years' time. And we'll dare to look ahead as well to 2021. So hopefully a lot of you or all of you will be able to join me in one form or another for that. It will be at seven o'clock. And the other thing I was going to mention while we're on this festive theme is that obviously I've got this book out in paperback now, the updated version. Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership from Harold Wilson to Boris Johnson. Now, normally you would go to book festivals and sign books and meet people. We can't do it in this era, all that's ancient history. But I've come up with this idea, and it's entirely up to you. But if you want to buy it for yourself or for friends or relatives, email me. I've got these labels, and if you email me, I can write a message on the label, and you can stick that label onto the inside bit of the cover, if you know what I mean. And so it's like you can get a personal signed message, just like we used to do in the olden days. So the email is the same as for your questions. So get that pen and paper ready, and if you're doing press-ups or whatever, just stop for a second. It's steverick14 at icloud.com. And if you want to get that book for a Christmas present for those you love or if people who don't like kind of reflections on politics, those you hate, uh, then I'll write a message. And what you need to do is email me with the message and your address and I'll post you a signed message with whatever you want me to write. It's like a, a virtual book festival with an actual message and signature which I'll post off to you and you don't even have to pay for the postage. Anyway, there's something, it's entirely up to you. That email address is, of course, the same one for your thoughts and questions. We've got some good ones today, one of which I'm going to reflect on at some length. So I'm going to be pretty brief, if that's okay with all of you, about this bit of the podcast, Current Reflections. This tier thing is so interesting. Michael Gove, I don't know if any of you get the Times, but Michael Gove wrote a good article 
it reminded me that he can write, unlike actually Boris Johnson, who has a kind of parody of a writing style full of colourful metaphors that um, are quite alienating in some respects, that quite a lot of them are violent. You know, we're on, we've got our foot on the throat of the virus. A, wrong, and B, quite unattractive images. But Gove writes well and can sustain a coherent argument over quite a lot of words. He, he took up the Times essay slot on Saturday. It's the biggest slot in the paper. And put a very coherent case for the tears. And I was also pleased to see that he was actually arguing privately for London to go into tier three. He is one of those who recognises that it's a false juxtaposition, the economy versus getting the disease, the, the virus down. If you let the virus rage, the economy suffers. And he argued very powerfully about the sort of need for the tier system, that there will be some who feel that they're in a local area where it's low, but a part of an area where people might travel to where it's high. And the only way of dealing with this is to be tough. Now, that was a good article. It appeared on Saturday morning, in my view, and I'm on the sort of cautious wing of the pandemic. By Saturday night, it had been wholly undermined and tonally and in substance contradicted by Johnson, who wrote a letter to Tory MPs who are threatening to rebel over the tears, basically sort of almost saying now that in two weeks' time when these tears are reviewed, there's high hopes that those in tier three or some of them could go into a lower tier. How does he know? I mean, is it going to happen by magic, uh, he's already not only undermining the Gove argument, but undermining the principles of the tier system and which area got into which tier before, actually, it's coming into effect. It doesn't come into effect until Wednesday. And it's an example of how flaky Johnson is as a leader. He um, panics easily. I mean, has every cause to be worried about the scale of the Tory revolt looming over the tier system. But I think strong leaders, those with a sense of purpose and a clarity about why they are acting in the way they are, would use the art of persuasion, as Gove did on Saturday morning. What a shame Gove can't think as rationally about Brexit as he has done so effectively, I think, over COVID. He's been an advocate of the lockdown. I think he advocated an earlier lockdown in September and was overruled by Dishi Rishi, a figure who um, is being challenged increasingly from the caricature of a kind of Superman to a rather more flawed political and inexperienced chancellor. Anyway, so there we have it, Johnson contradicting Gove, and now we await a tier system that he has already implied he hasn't got much faith in. And then when you throw into the mix the whole Christmas thing, where basically people have been told they can travel anywhere, they can meet in three groups over Christmas for five days, and we are all over the place. None of this, of course, is straightforward. It erupts with dilemmas wherever you turn this COVID saga. But it does seem to me that we are in 
one of the more eccentric sequences in a dangerously eccentric sequence in a competitive field of weird, erratic, contradictory approaches from early March, late February onwards. And then, of course, simultaneously, Brexit looms. What a week coming up. The vote on the tiers, where there will be a big Tory revolt, they'll go through because one way or another, Labour will back them. And then we will know the outcome by the end of this week, if not earlier in the week, of the Brexit talks. I'm not even going to speculate. It's come down after five years of this. It really is five years, because after the 2015 election, Cameron spent the whole year, in inverted commas, renegotiating Britain's place in Europe. And when the referendum was going to be, then there was the referendum. So after five years, it comes down to a choice between a calamitously flimsy deal versus an even more calamitous no deal. What a mountain of energy, high-stakes politics, money has been spent to bring us to that. So we await. There's no point speculating further. Much more of that in next week's podcast. One of the consequences of Brexit, of course, has been a rise in support of independence in Scotland. Oh, I heard on, you know, the genius on the BBC, the sophologist John Curtis, he's had a quieter time recently because there hasn't been a general election or a referendum. So he's been able to sort of reflect more. And I heard him say there's absolutely no doubt that Brexit is one of the things that has fueled the rise in support of independence in Scotland. Which brings me to the first of your brilliant questions for this week. It's from Stuart Clark, who incidentally says oh, he's going to attend live in December at King's Place. See you there, Stuart. That's great because we will be able to do it socially distanced. And he listens to the podcast on midnight cycles along the Thames. I just have you for company and a few foxes. That is such a, I, I mean, it's it's kind of cinematic. Uh, there's a painting in that, Stuart. I mean, it's, and it's a romantic image as well. I'm thrilled. Anyway, on a much more serious note, not that that is particularly hilarious or light-hearted, it's just potent and moving. Stuart has written an interesting article on the case for a federal Britain as part of the solution to the demands in Scotland for the UK. It's something that Gordon Brown, as he mentioned, often talks about. Gordon Brown is quite clever. He always has been at redefining what he used to call the dividing line. You know, so in the early to mid-90s when he was shadow chancellor, he said the dividing line on public spending, uh, which was always the issue that Labour lost elections over, was between Labour's plans for productive spending versus the Tories' capacity to waste spending, public spending money, taxpayers' money. Not high versus low spending, a battle Labour always lost the current Labour leadership, uh, going through an awkward phase, in my view, should have a look at that. I know they have, actually, and sometimes have put the similar case, but this government is blowing money all over the place at the moment on all kinds of dodgy projects, and they could make the same dividing line. But anyway, he said the uh, dividing line now vis-a-vis independence is the SNP proposition for independence versus a reformed UK, which could include a kind of federalist structure. 
So the question Stuart asks is, would the SNP accept a federal Britain being the alternative option to full independence in a future referendum? Well, at the moment, I don't think they will. I mean, they might accept it as an alternative option, but it's not the one they would back. It might become the alternative option if a referendum is delayed for long enough, of course, the weekend Nicola Sturgeon said she wanted the referendum next year but that's up to Johnson and I don't think he's going to grant it to her however big her victory. But that's the key I think. While the SNP are far ahead on the issue of independence, well far ahead, I mean they are, the polls suggest, ahead fairly consistently at the moment. I mean that might change but that's where we are at the moment. I don't think they will look for any compromise such as a kind of federal UK, which places Scotland in a a very distinct position, more distinct than they've got at the moment in terms of the powers of the Scottish Parliament. But they, I think, will go full out for independence. But if you, Stuart, have your way and Gordon Brown has his, I expect that to become much closer to the kind of juxtaposition between independence and the so-called reformed UK. I mean, there are so many big things happening in 2021. We'll be looking at it at King's Place. Obviously, that is one of them. Now, Stephen Bradley asks a question. I mean, we could take the whole podcast over, as he implies. Indeed, he says this is, you know, his question or theme is a challenge about the need to let politics breathe a bit, um, the raison d'etre of this podcast and a few other podcasts. And I'm going to read his question because it's about perceptions, the way we are conditioned to make assumptions about the past that then shape the way we see the present. So he says, it seems to me there's a kind of assumed narrative in the UK which goes unchallenged. It's the idea that Labour and the unions ruined Britain in the 70s and that the Thatcher reforms were necessary to get a grip on the whole crisis. And you hear things on the radio which kind of shares the assumption about that sequence. The reason why this matters is that this is, he says, a founding myth of the ideological right from the 80s to now and has made much impact with the public. And Labour have struggled big time to challenge it. So his questions are, in simple terms, what did happen? To what extent is the conservative narrative correct that Thatcherism in the form it took was necessary? What should have happened? Right, okay, well, those of you running, just add another 10k to your distance, because these are big, big questions. And I think it gets to the heart of something, which is this. There's no doubt the 1970s were, in many ways, a disaster area. The corporatism, uh, the sort of status corporatism, as ultimately espoused by Heath, Wilson and Callaghan in very different ways, or to some extent in different ways, were part of the crisis that engulfed each of them and brought about, in each case, their fall. Although Wilson left voluntarily, he was exhausted by the economic crises whirling around him, and they whirled around Heath and Callaghan. But the tragedy for the UK, in my view, is this, that at the end of that torrent of 
crises, 70s, that decade, the key question should have been this. Okay, this version of the state clearly hasn't worked, so what version of the state might work? What about Germany? What about France in the 80s, etc.? Instead, Thatcher came in and just said, the state just doesn't work, is bad news. The state stifles and we're about freeing people from the burdens of the state. And that became, through her capacity to win elections, to frame a narrative, it's a big theme in my chapter on the book on Thatcher, that she was an instinctive teacher. It might have been economically illiterate what she was saying, but she was able to do it very accessibly. But you're right, Stephen, that this became a kind of assumed narrative. And again, in 2010, when George Osborne came in, there was this view that the only way out following the financial crisis was an attempt to balance the books, something that he wholly failed to achieve, but condemned Labour for not wanting to achieve it, even though he didn't. And I think it is a tragedy, and I think under some other Tory leaders, if they had become leader, when Thatcher got in in 75, as you all know, the question might have been asked. Similarly, if Labour had not imploded, there was the schism with the SDP and everybody on the Labour side were either in torment or lost confidence. Labour too might have been able to develop a narrative. Kinnock tried. He talked about an enabling state, the state looking at what it can do to give people the chance to fulfil their potential in various forms. But basically, it was not until 2017 and the election then that there was, fleetingly at least, or maybe not, a new consensus about the good that the state can do, to quote from the Conservative Manifesto of 2017. But between 1979 and then, there was much less of an exploration of that question, what good can the state do? Instead, there was an assumption that it was just hopeless, clunky form of agency. But it was a kind of very specific failure of the state in the 1970s. But instead of saying, OK, that failed, but what about in Germany? How do they use the state as an instrument? And elsewhere, we adopted this very kind of minimalist approach. So I agree, and then everybody did work on that assumption. When New Labour came in, they stealthily intervened, sometimes very effectively. But if you look at the speeches of Blair and Brown, it was very rarely explicitly about the good that government can do, to the point, incidentally, that I think, for example, in Scotland, as they moved against Labour and still condemn, in many areas, New Labour, I don't think they made any connection at all about the good the government was doing to them. I remember Robin Cook, the former foreign secretary, resigned, as you all know, over the war in Iraq, saying at a fringe meeting at a Labour conference that the tax credits that Gordon Brown had delivered 
to many of the lower paid. In his constituency which, uh, in Scotland, many of them thought it was a technical adjustment by the inland revenue because Brown, Blair never really explained what they were doing out of fear of alienating Middle England. I think we've moved on now, but that narrative about the 70s and 79 and the 80s was a really potent one. And it is an example of how assumptions are formed and then rarely questioned by the media, by politicians, by all of us, the voters. So thank you for that email. It's a great one. Now I must get to Dominica Jewell, who is in France. And she has emailed with a photo. She said, this photo shows how much progress can be made with a lace-making project while listening to seven of your brilliant podcasts. Well, thank you so much. And I can tell you, I mean, the, the podcast, you can't see anything. But trust me, it looks stunning, this uh, uh, lace-making project. I should have carried on exploring the theme from that last question for about two hours. And you could have finished it, Dominica. But it's looking stunning. Anyway, she asks, according to the Politico poll of polls, in relation to current UK voting intentions, the Conservatives are on 40 and Labour is on 38. Given the chaos in relation to the handling of many aspects of the health crisis, the stench of corruption and the acute lack of popularity of Boris Johnson, how can the enthusiasm suggested by the latest polling be explained? It is interesting because what a year for a government. Now, any government would have been challenged by the COVID situation. And indeed, all governments have been. And if you look at it, look at Trump. He's lost an election partly based on his response to COVID. But even so, you kind of do think when the opinion polls come out, you think, Blimey, he must be in trouble now, or the Tories must be in trouble now, and there they are, still often slightly ahead, or sometimes very slightly behind. What's going on? The answer is complicated, I think. A, always view opinion polls very cautiously. They've been wrong so often, and quite often, though not always, understate the Labour vote. I think in December they understated the Tory vote, actually, in the last election, general election. But they are not necessarily reliable guides. Beyond that, I think there was that big shift in that December general election. And it will take time for voters who made that leap, you know, in that famous so-called red wall, to the Tories over Brexit largely, but not wholly, to leap away from them not least before Brexit is done. When Brexit is done, and we have to await the form it takes, maybe then they will wonder about the wisdom. But even then, possibly, when the chaos arises from Brexit, they will blame the European Union and join Boris Johnson in cursing the European Union rather than cursing the Conservative government. The other thing is most voters are unlike us, indifferent to politics and don't follow it very closely. And there is out there with COVID and other things a view, it's, it, it's not based on a detailed following of what's happened, that they've done their best in the hardest of circumstances. 
I've heard that said myself. I don't know whether all of you have. Now, if you follow it closely, you know there are big, big questions for the government to answer from its response in terms of lockdown timing to the distribution of contracts to mates of theirs with links to the Tory party or donors and so on. But most people don't follow it. So there are lots of reasons, I suspect, as to why it is that um, those polls are not showing a significant lead for Labour. There are questions for Labour to answer as well. Keir Starmer has, in some respects, made an impressive start in very difficult circumstances, as we've discussed on this podcast before and at King's Place. But he has got to recognise, I'm sure he does recognise, but then act on the recognition that political leadership is very different from being at the top in the law. Legalistic procedure is so different from politics, which is closer to an art form, political leadership, certainly in opposition, when you can't be judged by the implementation of policy, is very much an art form. And I think his artistic repertoire and his strategic judgment needs to develop fast. He's got a big call to make on how he deals with, if there is a vote, on the Brexit deal, if there is a Brexit deal. It's already thought that he's decided he will back it. Well, I think that is the wrong call, but we'll talk about that next week if that's okay. An interesting question from uh, Rob Watson. You discussed the idea, that's me by the way, of extended political interviews in in an episode recently. And I was wondering if we need to stop worrying about what broadcasters do in this regard because we have so many podcasts available these days. Yeah, now I think you're on to something. And one of the joys of podcasts is it does give you, I'm obsessed with this thing, of space. So you can have extended political interviews. You can have podcasts like these where you have more than two minutes to try and make sense of the riot of issues erupting around us at the moment. So they are a fantastic added, I was going to say bonus, but it's more than bonus. I think I bet a lot of us now listen more to podcasts than, say, the BBC output uh, much of the time because uh, that's a book crashing to the floor by the way it's it's fine there's it's not the bbc coming to attack me The, the bbc has decided that they are going to stick with this sort of compressed form you know the maximum if you're lucky an eight ten minute interview i still think there's a case for mainstream broadcasters to have one or two slots where an interview is really allowed to breathe. It should be a discussion, a conversation, where you delve a bit deeper about people's thinking, the dilemmas they face in politics, uh, the context in which they make their dilemmas. Let them explore some of that before saying, but you said 10 years ago that you would never do X, you've done X, how do you explain that? Not least when your party wanted you to do Y, and, and, and the sort of endless tedious questions on on tax and spend which will, will loom quite soon you know the labor side four years before the election ah so you would uh, spend eight billion on this and ah oh so how would you pay back the deficit then 
you know, that kind of thing that went on in the Osborne era when poor old Ed Balls had to sort of say he would spend 25p more than Osborne on this. And there was a 25p? So you're not for balancing the books. And, oh, but it's a good point. Thank God for podcasts. Yeah, let's hear it for podcasts. March Irving asks, with Rishi Sunak's failure to mention Brexit in his review and Starmer's ongoing refusal to bring it up at Prime Minister's questions, despite the mounting evidence of the huge upheaval, what's going on? I think, uh, March, you know, historians are going to look back at the silence and wonder what the hell was going on. We all know why there is the silence on the Labour side, the fear of alienating those Brexit voters. But with weeks to go... Anyway, it's all about to change. There will be a focus when we know whether there's a deal or no deal. But I think, again, historians will be fascinated about, talk about space. How was it that Johnson was given so much space and no scrutiny to say, A, there will be no extension to the talks, even though COVID has made them more constrained and compressed, and that a year was anyway a very short time to negotiate a deal of any substance when so many complex issues are involved. It has been strange. It's to do with COVID. It's to do with the fact that he's got a big, big majority. But um, yeah, it's a bit like July 1914, where people were partying and then suddenly in August 1914, Britain was at war. I'm not saying we're at war on January the 1st, but I reckon it's going to be tough, really tough. And there has not been any scrutiny since the election. Even then, I mean, the election was crazy. Corbyn didn't want to raise it. Johnson didn't want to give any interview. So it wasn't even scrutinised then. Historians will be fascinated. Kenny Brown. There's a lot about Scotland, actually. Uh, Kenny, yeah, we we kind of met up at the Edinburgh Fringe, where I do the Rock and Roll Politics show. And yeah, I hope to be back in 2021. We're vaccine dependent on that front. Anyway, Kenny says, I saw Reese Mogg make some comments in the comments about the devolution settlement, and it made me think if there was another referendum on Scottish independence, who in the Conservative and Unionist Party could make a coherent case for the Union? It's interesting. I've mentioned Gove earlier. He's obsessed with this issue, even though he's a supporter of Brexit. Even he sees the connection between Brexit and the rise for independence. Not that he would woo a single voter, but he could probably make a coherent argument. But it's quite clear that if there were to be a referendum, or even a big debate about whether that that referendum should happen, Boris Johnson should keep well clear of Scotland if he wants to prevail. Cameron kept well clear during the referendum. It's a perverse situation that you're putting the case for the Union and the Prime Minister can't go up. But these Etonians do not go down well. Uh, Nick Jones writes... Oh, he, oh, thank you, Nick. Uh, it's a very nice comments about the podcast. With Brexit increasingly looking like no deal or a deal not worth having, I find myself in the rare position of disagreeing with you. Ah, right, OK. By the way, lots of you have emailed to say you disagree with my view that Starmer made a big mistake suspending Corbyn on the day of the EHRC report. I haven't read them today because I've gone into my views and I know lots of you disagree and of course I fully respect that. I think he's made a big strategic error. But anyway, let's let's see what Nick says. Wasn't the real mistake in the last parliament, not the surrender on the election date, 
that was I've said you know again historians look back and say what the hell were those MPs with the majority in that hung parliament against a hard Brexit doing giving Boris Johnson the date of the election he wanted last December but the failure of Labour to get fully behind the cross-party coalitions that came so close to securing parliamentary majorities for an alternative if Starmer had been leader then do you think the outcome would have been different this is one of the tantalizing questions there's a thriller to be written about the summer before last where there was this coalition informally forming certainly against a hard brexit certainly against pulling out without a deal certainly critical of the johnson leadership and it stretched from former cabinet ministers like david gork too many on the labor side to the lib dems and the smp and none of them could find a way of mobilizing their potent potential power. It would have been easier if there had been another Labour leader like Starmer because I think others would have found it easier to accept the idea that they were working with someone who might end up in number 10, albeit briefly, as a leader that has defeated that Johnson administration and remember from July to December he had no majority at all and by kicking out a load of his own MPs he had an even smaller majority it's not that Corbyn was incapable of working with others but they definitely felt deeply uneasy or opposed to working with him that includes the Lib Dems the dissenting Tories and indeed some on the Labour side so I think if Starmer had been leader then he might have been able to get them to coalesce around him and sort things out it's it's a what if but that might have been the time for him to lead actually at the moment when he's facing a majority of over 80 in favour of the government he faces a different set of dilemmas and so I'm not necessarily convinced he's responding to them in the correct way we'll see what he says about brexit blimey we've gone on for quite some time so thank you all for your questions sorry if i didn't have time to read them out this week they were so stimulating they merited answers of some length indeed probably longer answers as well but i mean you'll have all finished cycling with the foxes at midnight by now and you know all the other things the lace making such creative things go on as this podcast is broadcast i'm gonna stop now just a reminder the king's place show streamed live but live at king's place on december the 16th the christmas special it's got to be your festive outing if you want to buy the book in paperback a it won't break the bank but people will still be thrilled and if you want me to sign on these labels a personal message to whoever you're buying it for or yourself email me and you will get that uh, sent to you and the email address again in case you were running when i read it out at first blimey what is my email address here it is okay uh, the email address for this podcast steve rick 14 that's steve r-i-c-1-4 at icloud.com by this time next week we'll be in our tears there will have been a tory revolt and finally, finally, we will probably know whether there's a deal or no deal. Epic times. 
Thanks so much for listening. Oh, by the way, I've been told, I don't know why it's effective, but please do it. If you could leave a review, you know, on, on the, uh, if you're listening on the Apple's iPhone setup, whatever it's called, you know, you can do stars. Well, only if you like it, do it. But apparently it helps in some way. So I've been told by podcast experts. Anyway, we've been through a lot and we will have many more issues to explore next week. Thanks for your questions. See you then. Bye.